I take it that was a little loud? Yeah, just a... Maybe you can lower your volume a little bit. Well, I wasn't prepared for that. I should have been. Around there. <laughs> okay. Intro music. Welcome, listeners, to episode four of Spirited Spooks. Four. We made it to four. Wow. Determination and death. I guess we do know what, what we're, I guess. Well, yeah, I suppose. Uh, what is this episode's topic, my love? It's about... Did you look at any of my notes? Uh, oh. Okay, good. Because <gasps> apparently my story is what spawned the start of the Great Bermuda Triangle Nice. I read none of your... This is going to be news to me. This is surprising. Okay, and I have no idea what you're talking about either, because I only read about my stories. I think we should do that. So, what is our... So, since we're covering the Bermuda Triangle, mm -hmm. I did not know that Bermuda has its own national drink. What? No, nice. we're drinking the national drink <clears throat> of Bermuda, the Bermuda Rum Swizzle, but because of availability for searching alcohol i couldn't follow the recipe exactly so instead i'm going to give you the version that we could build which nice. is i this one's a pitcher cocktail so we have more in the fridge i don't know how much of it i'm going to drink because i've discovered that i can drink only rum or i can have a blackout so i can't like switch up in between different kinds. Yeah, let's not have a... So, in the Bermuda Rum Swizzle, there yeah. is about a cup of Gosling's Black Steel Rum. Okay. We have about a cup <clears throat> of Ron Diaz Gold Rum. Roughly a cup and a half of orange juice, the same of pineapple juice. And then I put in roughly two ounces of grenadine, 15 dashes <laughs> of Angostura bitters, and then you stir it until it's frothy. You're supposed to use fizzle sticks, but I don't have a big fizzle stick, so I just used big wooden spoon. Okay. And I tasted it, and with all of that, you guys can imagine, oh my god, that thing tastes so boozy. But you know what? It does not. It's It really, he made it really balanced. Good job. Side note, as a reminder, <laughs> we do not endorse underage drinking, so... Yes. These recipes and cocktails are for those specifically old enough in their country of residence who are able to legally imbibe. <laughs> and, oh, it's my turn to sing. Okay. So, listeners, dim the lights, grab your beverages of choice, and get ready for some spirited spooks. All right. So, I'm going to try to not interrupt. <laughs> As in the last podcast, Yoda said what? Can you just read your notes, please? I want you to. I love Anywho, you. Too. Shush. Anywho, so <clears throat> uh, mine is about the infamous ship. So uh, on November 7, 1872, the 282-ton Brigantine Celeste set sail from New York Harbor. Go ahead. All right, what year again? 1870. In 1870? Oh, your story is actually before mine. I guess mine was just one that sparked it. Like mm -hmm. the big... Okay. Yeah. Um, it was on its way to G Genoa, Italy, 
on board were the ship's captain, Benjamin S. Briggs, wife, Sarah, along with a crew member. Less than a month later, December 5th, a passing British ship called De Gratia, or it's a D-E-I space G-R De Gratia, pronouncing uh, that looks to be Latin for day meaning God and gratia meaning ah, gracious. So gracious God. Gracious God. Got it. Okay. Also, <clears throat> side note, my story also is dated December 5th. Oh, what? Okay. <clears throat> so the day gratia spotted that Mary's full sail and adrift about 400 miles Azores with no sign of the captain his family, or any of the crew. Aside from several feet of water in the hold and a missing lifeboat, huh. the ship was undamaged and loaded with six months worth of huh. So it was adrift for a while before the British. However, this poor ship had a very past. Originally, it was christened called the Amazon. It was given a new name after a series of mishaps, Oops. including the sudden illness and death first captain. Collision with another ship in it. Your last story also had a collision. Mm. Correct. Correct. I'm Poor glad ship. that we keep finding different little tie-togethers from like yeah. beforehand and moving on. It's kind of cool. It, it, it carries on. I mean, I wasn't planning on that, but hey, it worked out. Fuck yeah, why not? Speaking of, stick around for the end so you can find out what episode's five topic is going to be. It's going to be really fun. Yeah. All right. So, an investigation into whether to grant payment by its insurers to the De Gratis salvaging found no evidence of foul play. Mary Celeste would sail under different owners for 12 years. Last captain deliberately ran it aground um, in Haiti as part of attempted... Wow. Holy crap. Buying a boat seems like a, <laughs> an extravagant way to go for some of that, their uh, insurance fraud. I mean, a boat? Like, yeah. let's just buy a big old boat and run it aground so we can do, like, that's just, that's excessive. A brigantine at that. It's not just a boat, it's a brigantine. So it's pretty big. <laughs> but in 2001, best-selling novelist and adventurer Clive Cussler claimed to have found the wreck of Mary Celeste, but later analysis of the timbers retrieved from he found showed the wood was still living at least a decade. So he went, I found the ship, I found the ship. And it turned out to be, uh, no, you did it, the wood. I need to find that little section because that was a lot of C's in a row, and I'm very proud of you. Why? Clive Cussler claimed, oh, because he didn't stutter. The tongue twisters? Yeah, I... Clive Kessler claimed. Like, that's all C-L-C-L-C-L. Yeah. Clive Cluster. See? Speech 101. Anywho. So, there are theories, quote-unquote, in it about what happened, what really happened to Mary Celeste. So, uh, here the number one is treachery. <clears throat> treachery is a number one because it was essentially the prevailing theory during the actual Savage Inquiry in 82. Naturally, Sonny Flood and get foul played by the crew Gracia, which is the one who found the ship. As I'm, as they, as is mentioned earlier, they could find out they're like. So, a little twist to that is that on top of that, the captains of both ships had friends. Briggs was a seasoned seaman and well respected in shipping. When the De Gracia first spotted the abandoned Mary Celeste, Captain Morehouse of the Gracia was. Securely concerned when he realized the abandoned ship is friend. They may even have shared dinner at New York's Astor House or Briggs. 
Ha. Cahoots. Can you say cahoots? Possibly. Possible speculated cahoots. Yay. We got cahoots. Uh, um, it's not impossible that Morehouse and the Degracia were guilty after all. They did stand to solve it. But between his friendship with Briggs and the fact that no evidence of violence was found, it didn't feel right. But they have actually ruled out treachery. Uh, theories of treachery, treachery, I'm sorry, weren't limited to the De Gracia. However, others included piracy, mutiny. I mean, sorry, I don't mean to interrupt here. But oh, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know, just the idea that the crew would turn onto the family of three, like the captain, his wife, and their daughter. I don't think it's as likely that a crew of eight would have turned on them. Yeah. Unless something weird went down. Well, according to the story, uh, uh, that they said that the mutiny also seems unlikely. By all contemporary accounts, Captain Briggs was a competent, fair, and rational captain. One of the reasons so perplexed by the needless abandoning of the Celeste. It's also doubtful that he would have hired men he didn't know well and traveling with his own wife and her aboard. And even if there had been a mutiny, why would Briggs' crew abandon the ship after troll? It would have been suicide. That is the theory. Is there anything you would like to, to that before? Oh, I go to no, because yeah. I'm gonna, uh, during mine, I'm gonna, in my notes, I have similarities to yours, so I'll just do it then. That nice. way I'm not gonna be taking up your story time. Um, theory number two, alcoholics. <laughs> ah, <laughs> ah, this is a weird one. Let me guess, was it rum? You and the listeners are going to find out. Ooh. So anyway, uh, <clears throat> another theory focuses on the ship's cargo. Those 1,701 barrels of industrial strength alcohol. Sorry. Uh, does it explain what kind of alcohol it is? Because it can still be alcohol Ooh. in my head canon. Meaning, if we don't have the actual paperwork, I'm just going to continue to think that it was rum. 171 some odd barrels, was it? 1,701. Oh, of course there's a 17 in it. Why not? Uh, the story goes that some of the barrels may have leaked nauseous fumes, a theory supported by the nine empty barrels from aboard. These fumes may have built up, causing a small explosion, or at least causing the ship's crew and captain to fear anything. Okay, so now I'm just picturing, like, barrels of moonshine and still alcohol, which is, like, 90, or, like, 80 to 90 percent. Possibly. So, yeah. I mean, if a few barrels got loose, toppled, and emptied their contents, that's uh -huh. a lot of, like, alcohol fumes. <clears throat> that could totally drive you insane. Oh, yeah. Of course. Or at least crazy enough in the short run that you would be under suspicion or paranoid or whatever. Also, I imagine, like, you would be afraid of fire because that's extremely... I mean, Remember, they didn't have electricity, so it would have been oil lamps and crap. Yeah, yeah. Horrid, like, uh, that many fumes, I would run <clears throat> for my life. Yeah, but uh, don't watch. It okay. goes on to say... Huh? Nothing. Keep going. Uh, um... <clears throat> It is then possible that Briggs ordered a temporary evacuation so that all souls aboard could sail in the lifeboat behind the Mary while the be cleared. At some point, their tow line may have detached, leaving the lifeboat behind 
while everyone in it watched the very slowly drift away, leaving them alone and helpless in the facet. Like, an, imagine seeing your ship stranding hundreds of miles of. I yeah, mean, no, thank you. Yeah, no bueno. No fucking bueno. Ooh, that just gave me an Indeed. idea for a future topic. Okay, well, let's not announce it now. We can. Oh, no, that. it's going to be a niche topic. Like, it's going to be a short story at best. Okay. Um,. There was no uh, visible evidence of a, though it still leaves the possibility of alcohols that even a coup headed experienced captain might opt for a case, especially when his own family was aboard. <sighs> See, that's what I was saying earlier, was yeah. like, imagine that mm -hmm. somebody came into your building and you have a furnace running. All of yeah. a sudden, you just smell highly volatile gasoline. Yeah, okay. Like, if you smell gasoline and you know you have open flames, are you going to be sticking around or are you going to GTFO? No. GTFO, get the fuck out of there. Abandoned ship, abandoned ship. <laughs> like, so far, Seriously. this one sounds the most, like, Likely. plausible. Mm. At least in my brain, it sounds the most plausible. Sorry, this cocktail is really good and it's hitting me harder than I thought it would. Yeah, it's kind of hitting it's me. It's a nice oh. little creeper. Of course, I already had a can of beer already, but it's not affecting me quite yet, but it's getting there. But that's, I just want to stay on topic. Uh, this is here. why we write down our notes, my love. Yeah, yeah, that's why. We, yes, I know you said it on the last one, too. Same thing. Okay, anyway, on a side story is about a Sir Arthur and Doyle. Love it. Mm, who's he the writer of? I don't remember what he wrote. I do remember that he was an explorer and that he did a lot of cataloging. I also know that his story was used as one of the character backstories in Tarzan. Okay. So, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the writer of Sherlock Holmes, okay, even weighed in with a short story published in the four. The inhabitants of the ghost ship fell victim to an ex-slave in vengeance on a less sensationalized an investigation chronicled in a 2007 document, True Story of the was able to offer no definite conclusion, but did suggest a scenario to a faulty chronometer, if I pr pr pronounce that correctly. Let me see, where are you highlighted? Chronometer. Okay, I said it correctly. Thank you. Do uh, you know what that is? Well, chrono is time, so it's probably a... Time. Oh, no, I don't know either. I was just asking if you knew what that was. Shall we... Here, I'll, I'll, I can do the Google, just keep okay. reading. <clears throat> so, uh, the truth is a faulty chronometer, rough seas, and a clogged onboard pump could have led to Briggs to order the ship abandoned shortly after sighting November 25th, 82. According to the last entry of the ship's logbook made that morning, that very morning, the Mary Hales was, was within sight of the Azores Island and Maria, some 500 miles from where the De Gracia would find it. Huh. Huh. Wait. Wait. Okay, wait. Before we get in, so I, I did the Google. Okay. What so I pulled up the Wikipedia for a marine chronometer, uh -huh. since that's most likely what it was, since it yeah. was on a boat. Yeah. And it's basically a timepiece that's on a ship, but it uh, determines what time it is by the positions using stars. Ah, okay. So it's like a nighttime compass, but instead of being the cardinal directions, it's which constellation is in which direction. Got it. Okay, so cool. Um, So, hearing number three actually piggybacks off of that. That's why... With I... a chronometer? Correct. Okay. Oh, 
fun fact. Sorry, really random fun fact. Chronometer is based off of Chronos, not Chrono. So it's not the 12 hours in the clock. It's the 12 houses of the heaven. Correct. The Zodiac. Correct. Oh, my. Right? Like, it's tasty, but it's going to hit hard. I don't know if I'll make it. Holy shit. I might need to check it. I'm going to try and not have refill until after your story. I only have two more up notes um so the, the theory number three is a bad pump pump like p-u-m-p pump like a water pump or like a like interesting a heart. you okay. have piked my interest all right so this theory may have the most going for when comparing the solly fods notes a case of the original log book that was lost in 85 right. so what now the uh the solly floods notes so if you remember, I, I, I mentioned that name, Holly Flood. I don't think so. It doesn't even sound familiar. Okay. Um, so it was this the person's notes um, <clears throat> in the original thought book that was lost in 85. Gotcha. So that's the only, the closest surviving primary source that they had to go upon. So it was po- possibly due to a faulty chronometer, a time peanut way it picked it up. So he had clearly become disoriented the day the sh- the day before the ship was abandoned. It also course perhaps seeking some relief from a bad weather and a busted chronometers. Chronometers would not have caused experienced captain like Briggs to ship. It had to be something else. So this one is what? Okay, and then now I have even more speculation to add after <laughs> my story. Okay. It'll be so, good. You'll know exactly what I'm talking about I, when I start talking I, about it. Yeah, I pr- I probably will connect it really good. And I thought that was good. Oh, next week one is going to be, or the next book oh, is yeah, going to be yeah. real good. But we're each only having one next week. That bad, huh? Uh-huh. I'm excited and scared at the same time. You should be, but it's going to be a fun story. Anyway, keep uh, going with your notes because I right. kind of got to pee mm-hmm. and I really want to refill. Okay, so uh, this is where the pumps come in. On its previous voyage, the Mary Selects had carried coal. Her cargo had also recently extensively repaired, renovated. The result may well have been a pump that clogged with coal and sawdust. This would explain why one of the ship's two pumps was found disassembled. Hmm. I can see that. Yeah. Uh, the last of my notes is so is the, the Mary Celeste we solved. Is it? Is it really? There's a lot to the story of the Mary Celeste that we'll never know. Too much time has passed. Too many records long dead by... <laughs> unless wow. the <laughs> Unless the De Gracia had any young giant tortoises in her cargo hold at the time. <laughs> is ah! that part of your notes? That's yes! really not fair. Uh, Baby tortoises? History Channel. I got this off of... That, that's... <sighs> Okay, I mean, I can't do anything but sigh. Which you are doing right now. <laughs> and yet, the story persists, not unlike our collective fascinating surrounding stories about a triangle or a missing jetliner. Death may be final. The idea of vanishing space captures the imagination just as vast unknown. It is a place where things like fear and curiosity, if you're Searle. Okay. As for the, the Mary Celeste, her end was far less mysterious. In November of 1884, she was sailed r- r- right into, listen to this one now, 
she was sailed right into a reef just off the coast of Haiti. Remember that one? Wrecked by our crooked captain. The, the one who drove it ashore? Correct. He was charged with fraud and died. So there's the saying that that's the most plausible cause the ship just gone and that he deliberately crashed it. So, uh, so those people's strongest opinion of what has happened is that the ship disappeared after running aground? Correct. But then wouldn't they have found pieces? Nothing was found of them. Huh. And that is the end of Okay, well, we're going to have a lot to consider. And if you catch on to the little bits of my story that tie into yours, yeah. I think you're going to understand why I had to put off talking about the similarity. Okay, then let's take a pause, file, and get ready yes. for yours. So, listeners, uh, we'll be back in a couple minutes in our world, our world, and a couple of seconds in yours. Talk to cool. you soon. Alrighty, we'll be back. All right, listeners, welcome back. And yes, we washed our hands. Yes, we did. And we made us another cocktail. So We didn't make to... another one. We just got oh, refills. Yeah. Because, again, we made a pitcher. And it's starting to get to me, so I... Oh, it's okay. Team. My story is real captivating and really fun. For the Bermuda Triangle episode, I'm covering the story of what is known as Flight 19. This is considered to be the case that started all the mystery, all the hype, all of the ghost stories that were to follow World War II. Okay. This is the story that kind of set it off. Okay. So I do have a little note in here before I actually get into my notes, and that is that the majority of my notes will be from the Naval Air Station Fort Lauderdale Museum. It's going to be from their direct website. I will be filling in little sections thanks to the research I did. And all of that was found on the Naval History and Heritage Command, which is a .gov or .mil, which is the military database that is publicly available. And my final source for this was the History Channel. I did not have to use Wikipedia once for these notes. That's how, like, captivating it was. Okay. So, uh, you ready for the story of Flight 19? I'm ready. Get going. Okay. I kind of wrote my notes in a certain way, so I think you'll like this one. Just like when playing TTRPG, let's start by setting the scene. It was an afternoon in December 1945. Big billowing clouds covering the blue Florida sky in the early afternoon. A trade wind blows strongly. Five TBM Avenger torpedo bombers take off from the runway at Naval Air Station Fort Lauderdale. For these pilots, it was their last practice before graduation. Little did they know that it would be their last flight. Uh, question. TBM? Uh, it is a torpedo bomber. It's a World War II era uh, propeller plane that carried a bomb in its bay. Or a torpedo in its bay. Oh, so like the the ones that you seen in movies where the door opens on the bottom. And yeah, the two that come out of the little propeller plane it. and it drops okay, like yeah. three or four torpedoes. That. Yeah, okay. it's that. Okay, got it. Cool. So, for the background of this, um, there were five planes. Wait, one, two, three, four. Five planes all in total that were that all make up the 
what is known as Flight 19, which is okay. technically uh, Training Flight 19, as this was the 19th flight plan of the day to cover the exact same flight path. Flight path. Ah. Sorry, this room is a little getting to me. Yeah. Oh, God. So I'm going to start off by letting you know the crew. There were three men above each of the planes, except for one of the flights, which only had two. Every one of these men aboard were either Marine or Navy, and none of them had anything less than around 300 hours of flight time. This is important. So let's start off with the first plane. This is FT-28 with flight leader, uh, Naval Air Station, Fort Lauderdale, Flight Instructor Lieutenant Charles Carroll Taylor of the U.S. Navy Reserve. In his plane, he had with him Gunner George Francis Devlin, also of the Navy Reserve, and Radioman Walter Reed Harpart Jr., also of the Navy Reserve. Uh, I have to bring them up because Flight Leader Lieutenant Charles Carroll Taylor has had well over 2,500 flying hours and multiple World War II II flight and combat tours. Uh, This particular run was a routine training flight. It was about three hours, and it is known as navigation problem number one. Okay. Uh, In the second airboat, we have... FT-36, as piloted by Captain Edward Joseph Powers of the United States Marine Corps. Gunner was Sergeant Howell Oren Thompson of the Marine Corps Reserve. And Radioman Sergeant George Richard Pownessa of the USMC Reserve. And so the third airship was FT-81. It was piloted by 2nd Lieutenant Forrest James Gerber of the Marine Corps Reserve. Forrest. His gunner was Private First Class William Lightfoot. Sorry. And his gunner was Private First Class William Lightfoot, also of the Marine Corps Reserve. And his radioman was Corporal Alan Cosner. Sorry. His radioman, Corporal Alan Cosner, had asked to be excused from the exercise so that's the one airship that only had two the rest of them all had three and that's going to be your pilot your gunner and your radio okay and the fourth uh airplane was which was designated ft3 it was piloted by ensign joseph tipton bozzi of the navy reserve gunner position was herman arthur thalander sergeant first class of the u.s navy reserves and the radioman was Bert E. Baluk, of, also of the Navy Reserve. In our final plane, FT-117, piloted by Captain George William Stivers, Jr. of the Marine Corps, Gunner Sergeant Robert Francis Gallivan of the Marine Corps Reserves, and radioman Private Robert Peter Grubel, also of the Marine Corps Reserve. So, I have all of their names. Again, these are... Each of these men, every single one of them, has logged around 300 hours of being in the air. Okay. This was their final uh, flight training before they would have graduated. Okay. So now I have a little timeline because 
I went to the Naval Air Station Fort Lauderdale's website, which this is their big number one thing. It's one of their three main topics on their website. But basically, it breaks down the military side of it, which is why okay. I used the Naval Air Station Fort Lauderdale Museum. Their timeline was the most complete with the most detail. And then I filled it in with the uh, Naval Heritage and History Sorry, Naval History and Heritage Command. They helped me to fill in some of the blanks and some of the empty spots. And then the History Channel filled in what little spots were left. Okay, cool. So, uh... All right. So, <clears throat> the date, December 5th, 1945. December 5th was the same date that you mentioned earlier. Right. So, at 2.10 p.m., Flight 19 takes off from Naval Air Station Fort Lauderdale on a plan taking them east on the first leg of their exercise. Again, this was a routine flight training. It was three hours in total. Uh, 20 minutes later, so at about 2.30, Flight 19 crosses hens and chickens, shoals, dropping their practice torpedoes because they're on a bomber run. So they practice right. by running dummy bombs. They drop it on this uh, atoll. And then they fly to a second location, changing course for the second leg. And then they change course one more time for the third leg of the journey, which is the return to Naval Air Station Fort Lauderdale. Oh, I'll get okay. to that. About an hour and 15 minutes later, right around 345, Flight Leader Lieutenant Colonel Taylor reported in saying that they were lost due to the onboard compasses not working. And the direct quote uh, is, cannot see land. We seem to be off course. For a few moments, they lost uh, communications. And when the personnel in the air tower looked out in the direction where the plane should have been, which was only about like 90 or so miles away. So, so within like view, they should have been able to see something. Yeah. There was nothing, nothing at all. Just the cloudy skies. And it was right around that, like after a short moment, they regained their communications with Flight 19, to which Flight Leader Lieutenant Colonel or Lieutenant Taylor said, We cannot be sure where we are. Repeat, cannot see land. At around 4 p.m., less than two hours after the flight had taken off, the Miami Airport weather station recorded a storm with squalls at sea level, 40 mile an hour winds at a thousand feet, and full hurricane winds reaching upwards of 75 miles an hour at 8,000 feet. Holy shit! So, I mean, this training flight took off, and within two hours of takeoff, there's a full hurricane strength wind blowing in the altitude where they would be. From here on out, my timeline gets skewed because they removed the times. I couldn't find the direct outline or a good outline to base it off of. So these are going to be kind of in their chronological order as I've found them. It might not be the actual chronological order, but it's the order that seems most logical for me. Okay. Yeah. All right. Okay. Let me take a sip real quick. I am like down to a quarter of my soul. You're going to be have... drunk soon. I have like that much left. You can have one more cocktail. No, After that, no, you're going to be absolutely too drunk. I am done. After this. Okay, so I have in this 
part of the story that comes after 4 p.m. when communications with Flight 19 get kind of skewed, uh-huh. there is a sub story. <clears throat> and I'll bring up that sub story when it is time. But for mm. right now, what you need to know is that in the air off the coast of Florida was Lieutenant Robert F. Cox. He was a Navy pilot also flying out of Naval Air Station Fort Lauderdale. He was not part of this training flight, though. He was just a pilot in the air. Uh, At some point, the times were not uh, written or taken, so I couldn't quite say whether or not this was the same moment where they lost communications with the flight tower or if this was some point before or after. But at some point, Lieutenant Cox uh, intercepted Flight 19's radio comms and, while hearing all of this, asked if they were in need of assistance, to which uh, Flight Leader Taylor says, and I quote, Both my compasses are out and I'm trying to find Fort Lauderdale, Florida, His Taylor said, his voice sounding anxious. I'm over land, but it's broken. I'm sure I'm in the Keys, but I don't know how far down. No way. So you don't know where you are. So he said, literally, I. So do you know the layout of the ocean mm. off the coast of southern Florida and near Bermuda? Okay. Anyway, he looks down to the sea to find out what's down there to see if there's any land that looks familiar. Yeah. And he thinks that he's in the Florida Keys instead of in his projected path, which was supposed to take him out towards the um, Atlantic Ocean. Okay. So then I have my next bullet. Again, this is really confusing. I couldn't find anything concrete. So my next bullet is that uh, flight leader Taylor had taken into turning around and heading west. So in Florida, that's the whole thing is if you get lost, point your nose to the setting sun and you'll hit land. Okay. So Taylor had been talked into turning around and heading west by one of the other pilots of the flight, the training flight. Yeah. But then he had turned a second time at around six o'clock. So two hours after the storm had rolled in. And he was doing that because he was worried that they were in the Gulf of Mexico which could be proven by his claiming that they were over over the Florida Keys. So he thought that they had somehow gotten turned south instead of north. <clears throat> so, so here's wait here. Here's the quote for this bullet. Yeah. And I quote, "We didn't go far enough east. We might as well just turn around and go east again." So now I bring that up because if you're off the coast of Florida, East is open ocean. Yeah. Northeast is open ocean. Southeast right. is the Caribbean. To the south is the Caribbean and the Gulf of Mexico. To the west and southwest is the Gulf of Mexico. So, I mean, by all means, he could have been lost in the Gulf of Mexico. But according to uh, Lieutenant Taylor himself, his compasses weren't working. Neither of them. This is what I was saying about your the Mary Celeste having the chronometer not work. Yeah, but the chronometer is a timing device, but could still be influenced by magnetic yes. fields. Okay. Yeah. okay, so this is my next bullet, is that the next transmission came in. It was not the voice of Flight Leader Taylor. Instead, it was 
a different male voice unknown at this time or at least at the time of my research i couldn't find out whose voice it was and i quote we can't find west everything is wrong we can't be sure of any direction everything looks strange even the ocean end quote well the compass purely just did fucked up it was later revealed that taylor Mm. had relinquished command to another pilot for reasons unknown oh what so at this point we're going to change gears and i'm going to tell you the sub story are you ready i'm ready i'm going to take a sip and Mm. then we'll be ready to keep going all right cool so this sub story is of the pbm mariner all right so after communications with flight 19 were lost remember i told you earlier that they lost communications with the flight tower yeah so the speculation at least from my end is that flight 19 lost communications with the flight tower at nas fort lauderdale okay and so uh fort lauderdale was sorry let me just read the notes instead of trying to paraphrase things that have nothing to do with it so the story of the pbm mariner at least on my end is as follows after communications with flight 19 were lost two pbm mariner flying boats were launched carrying rescue equipment now a flying boat is basically a seaplane yeah that i know okay so they were launched with other equipment oh sorry this was a note i didn't put in uh god damn it what was his name uh lieutenant Mm. robert cox the pilot who was in the air and intercepted some of the transmissions correct so Lieutenant Cox had reported back to the flight tower saying that he was going to launch a rescue effort after hearing Flight 19's distress calls and yada yada. They told him not to retrieve or to not pursue, to get back and to ground himself. Uh, Around this time, all planes, all flights and all boats were grounded in order like for safety's sake, so that no other ships would be lost. Again, there was a full-blown hurricane going on. So the NAS Fort Lauderdale launched the PBM Mariner boats with rescue equipment, and they were launched towards Flight 19's last transmission. After about 10 minutes of searching the area, another ship, the SS Gaines Mills, reports an explosion at sea and what appeared to be an airplane falling. The Gaines Mills observed a widespread oil slick, but found no survivors. Weather conditions worsened as the storm picked up, and so the PBM Mariner that had left, along with the 13 crewmen aboard, were not recovered, and they're still missing to this day. So as as of December 5th, 1945, from Flight 19 itself, as well as the rescue PBM ship, there was a total of six aircraft and 26 personnel all disappeared, never to be seen or heard from again. Um, I didn't include this in my notes, but I remember it because I tried to keep hold of certain things in my head. Uh, okay. Flight leader, Lieutenant Taylor, was later charged with causing the disappearance of all of these aircraft of abandoning his mission and like screwing over the u.s navy 
<laughs> essentially he got court-martialed posthumously while he was missing or whatever i don't know the correct terminology nor do i pretend to so but lieutenant, uh, flight leader lieutenant taylor essentially got blamed for kidnapping the personnel aboard the aircraft and sabotaging the flight and stealing so he was uh dishonorably discharged from the navy with the thought being that he had committed treason by taking these airship and the crewmen and just disappearing. Uh, a few years back, all of those got, uh, what is the word I'm looking for? Not redacted. Uh, almost like reneged. Reactivated. Uh, reunion. Okay, the word's not important. I think we're both a little too drunk to think about it. But they they ended up clearing him of the charges because the flight was lost. Redaction. So I'm going to end my notes on the story of Flight 19 with this quote pulled directly from the Naval History and Heritage Command, which, according to them, is the last transmission ever from Flight 19. And I quote, After 20 minutes of radio silence, the new leader's voice transmitted to the tower, but it was trembling, bordering on the bordering on hysteria. We can't tell where we are. Everything is... Can't make out anything. We think we may be about 225 miles northeast of base. For a few moments, the pilot rambled incoherently before uttering the last words ever heard from Flight 19. It looks like we are entering Whitewater. We're completely lost. And that's it. That's the end. Talk about freaking... None of the ships, none of the planes were ever found, none of the people ever turned up. The rescue boats that got launched were never found ever again. And this was all, like, to say that they were never found, I mean, this was the biggest search in Navy history to find boats in these, in the post-World War II era. Like, it was the largest manhunt to find survivors. And nothing and no one was ever recovered. So that's the story of Flight 19. There is a movie. I didn't watch it. We may come back to revisit this after we watch the documentaries that both of us have cited but did not watch or use. So we might come back to this one a little bit later with an update. Uh, That's it for tonight's episode other than some ending notes. So, my love, do you see the ending notes area? Yep, I right now. Okay, go ahead and read that sentence because I'm going to add to it. Our next episode will be the both of us one. We're both excited. We'll be We're going to be covering the disappearance of Eliza Tam- of Eliza Lamb and for Spook Juice. This is why I told you we're only going to have one of them next week. We're going to be having some AMFs. Oh, God. I know that that's in bad taste, but oh, honestly, my. like... How else did it happen? If you don't know Eliza Tam, tune into our next episode. There's a lamb on Eliza Lamb. Yes, Eliza. Did I say Tam again? Yes. You- I'm sorry. I blame the rum. Cool. <laughs> anyway, listeners, be sure to check out all of our links that you can yep. find on our link tree that's already in our episode notes, as is the spook juice recipe. Again, 21 and up only. We don't or whatever the legal drinking age may be in your place of residence. Oh, this is a yummy burp. Rum burps are good, but they're kind of fruity. God. Anyway, 
uh, go ahead, check out our links. You'll find our Twitch in there at some point in the future. I might be doing live streaming of me editing the audio for our podcast. Mm. Everything can be found in our link tree, so be sure to check the notes. We'll see you next time for episode five, Eliza Lamb and the Elevator Game. Oh my God, I'm so excited. Ah!